electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Scott Wapner this morning with Leslie Picker and Mike Santoli. Carl, Jim, and David have the morning off today. Let's take you to the futures on this final trading day of 2021. There you go. Uh, We're down on the Dow, uh, down on the S&P. It's marginally higher on the Nasdaq. The S&P hasn't fallen on the final trading day since 2017. So keep an eye on that. Our roadmap this morning starts with the bull market of 2021. The S&P 500 on pace for its third straight year of gains with the energy sector leading the way. Plus, it's been a wild ride for EV names this year. New players Rivian and Lucid Motors joining the crowded field while Tesla notched a $1 trillion valuation. And Warren Buffett refusing Senator Bernie Sanders' request to intervene in a strike at a Berkshire-owned company. We've got those details. Scott. Mike, thank you. We do begin with the markets, of course, on this final trading day of 2021. Mike, what a year it's been. S&P for the year, up 27.2 percent. That is the best year for the S&P broad stock since 2019. Uh, remarkable. Uh, I don't think a lot of people anticipated quite this much upside at the index level. And just a few observations of kind of the, the path along the way is, um, you know, it wasn't as easy as it seemed, arguably, not to say that you had big pullbacks. It was down 5% uh, at the most for the S&P. But you had multiple kind of boom bust, uh, you know, cycles within this market along the way. It didn't, it's not visible in the S&P chart, right? It was, it was the first quarter of last year was all about IPOs and SPACs. And, and ARC and speculative uh, growth tech. And even, by the way, the, the reopening trade pretty much peaked in, in February, March of last year in, in a lot of respects. Airlines certainly did. Uh, and yet, along the way, there was enough rotation and it, it kind of, the market uh, kind of just healed itself because of those uh, mega cap gains, because of the fact that credit markets stayed so tame and you didn't have any real macro shocks, even with the inflation running where it did, right? I mean, it didn't tighten financial conditions enough to crimp uh, the market, you know, maintaining its multiple on record earnings, basically. Mike, I'm curious, uh, given this is also, of course, the last trading day of the month, December's been interesting. I think a lot of people were expecting uh, a bit more of a rally in December, despite the fact that the market had done so well previously this year. It's been kind of a mixed picture. Of course, Santa Claus rally is still in effect, looking to notch some gains during that time period. Of course, there is still today and then two more days in 2022 as well. Are you surprised by the picture in December in particular? I'm not sure if I'm too surprised, just given uh, the cross currents that we were dealing with that, that really did take uh, most of the market by surprise. So if, if you dial it back, if you look at the, you know, the chart back to, for, for the quarter or the year, the S&P 500 hits like 4,700 in the beginning of November. You have a great jobs report. Yeah, we're concerned about inflation. Yeah, the Fed's going to pivot. But we think it's because the, the economy's in boom times. And so the reacceleration story uh, was very much the consensus. Uh, then you got you know, a little bit of kind of back and fill because the market 
was a little bit stretched, and then Omicron hits. So then the navigation there was a shakeout uh, in a lot of those kind of economically cyclical names that you would have been buying and holding to play that boom that, that all of a sudden seems like it's going to be deferred, uh, at least, uh, you know, if not actually kind of diminished ultimately. And so I think that's what interrupted the typical November, December cadence at the same time you know those those kind of speculative glamour stocks that we were talking about that peaked in the first quarter they just essentially had a give up trade and so a lot of the liquidation uh, in smaller stocks and in some of the the real story names that we've been talking about so much th th that's to me what was the undertow in the market that the uh, that the index has been fighting against but i think it's fairly respectable point to point you know you, like i said you never got a big uh, shutdown and maybe 4,800 on the S&P. It seems like it uh, isn't going to be the easiest thing to slice through to the upside as 47 was in Scott. But, you know, I think it's hard to really uh, complain uh, if you're a bull about exactly how things have gone, even though maybe it sets up a slightly challenging, you know, hurdle uh, for 2022. It's kind of funny, Mike. Um, the word of 2021, I think, from a market standpoint, can be summed up with liquidity. And I, I do feel as though sometimes we made it more difficult for ourselves, uh, overthought the process rather than just focus on the overriding theme of that, how much liquidity was in the system and not just focusing on the old saying, you dance with who brung you. Um, <laughs> I remember in the financial crisis after the Fed came to the rescue, it was David Tepper on our air who said, you know, with all of this liquidity, everything's going to go up. And it really wasn't more difficult than that. It was a way to distill everything down to that particular fact. And I feel like that's where we are again. Yes, we had volatility throughout the year and there were peaks and there were valleys and things like that, of course. But at the end of the day, liquidity ruled the day. And that's why we find ourselves talking about uh, one of the best years that we've had in a while. The market's been up for a few straight years. No big shock. Why? Because liquidity. And the only reason that we're thinking that the calculus could change perhaps next year as we're coming out of COVID is because some of that liquidity, Leslie, is being pulled away. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And I think that's that has a lot of investors wondering how to position themselves in advance of that. That's why we've seen a huge allocation to hedge funds at the end of the year. Assets under management for hedge funds now surpassing four trillion dollars for the first time ever. And you look at that against the backdrop of massive underperformance relative to the markets and you wonder why that is. It's what you just mentioned, the pairing back of liquidity, the hope that active management will be a way to get around that in the new year as we do kind of see this new regime, the potential for inflation, also rising interest rates, the Fed tapering, all of that plays a role. And so active managers are hoping, and that this has been their sales pitch essentially for investors, that if you invest with us, we can help protect your downside while also doing some individual, whether it's stock selection or bond selection or other assets, to help you maximize the upside as well, Mike. Yeah, I, I think that that's that's the annual sales pitch. Perennially, that's what you know you're going mm -hmm. to sell if that's what you have to offer. It is more plausible, probably at this point in the cycle, to say, look, it's the time uh, to deal with offsets and trade-offs, and not just kind of all boats rising. I, I do, you know, sometimes like to scrutinize the concept of liquidity. Um, to me, it's not a quantity of a substance like money or or fed help it's it's a promise believed it's this it's the it's the confidence that you have 
that assets are priced mm -hmm. roughly as they should be, that somebody's going to be on the other side of the trade, that people are willing uh, and, 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 you know, rational holders of riskier assets, and they're going to be there. So in theory, we're at a point in the cycle where the Fed can say the real economy can kind of take over uh, mm -hmm. at some point here. And yes, the, the big risk is that uh, the Fed feels like they have to do too much to fight inflation uh, before the real economy is ready for it. So, yeah, that's the that's the balance that we're uh, trying to strike here this year. I also you know, wonder, there, too, there were other. Uh, Let's go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I also wonder, too, as we kind of reflect back on 2021, there have been certain uh, smaller shocks that took place under the surface with regard to what we saw with GameStop trading, for example, uh, with AMC, with Archegos. Remember that whole situation where there were these huge run-ups in single stocks that ultimately plummeted when that family office received a margin call and ultimately had to pare back its uh, holdings entirely through these block trades. You know, you kind of wonder, will we see more of that next year, especially as these things become more pronounced in a backdrop where there isn't as much, perhaps, support from the Fed? I think that's going to be another question, Scott. Yeah. And the other thing, and you just made me think of something else uh, beyond what I was going to say a moment ago, is maybe one of the other critical stories of the year, Leslie, as we're talking about meme stocks and, and some of the other phenomenon that we witnessed this year is the incredible ability, Mike, of the market to self-correct. Um, and that's maybe why you didn't have a larger than 5% or so pullback at, at any time, really, through, throughout the year, even as you came up upon calls of, oh, it's, we're due for a bigger correction mm -hmm. and the S&P is going to pull back 10%. The market corrected yeah. itself, unlike in prior cycles when we got really bubblicious and overheated, whether it was the SPAC market or NFTs, uh, IPOs didn't do well this year, or any other area where there was perceived excess in the market, it corrected itself. And I think that helped the overall environment from becoming right. um, you know, a, a larger cave-in in, in certain instances. No doubt about it. Look, 10 or 11% nominal GDP growth and 20 and 30% corporate earnings growth is going to create a cushion. And I think that's partially what happened. In the absence of a real credit stress event that, that basically has people reducing risk across the board and saying, you know, let me sell everything, it became more rotation. Uh, it became, I'll let my equity exposures go higher as the market goes up, as opposed to, you know, trimming back and immediately going to the sidelines or going into something safer. Uh, so I, I think that's been the, exactly the dynamic here. And, you know, at some point that ends. There's a certain degree of luck in there. We easily could have just deepened into a 10 percent correction, you know, with a couple of things going differently. Uh, and that probably will happen you know, before too long. It's rare to have two straight years without one, but it has happened before. Not right. to mention you have a whole you generation. Know what the, of what the one thing. Yeah. For, sorry. Sorry, Les. As oh, Mike's okay. talking, you know, I'm thinking of things like I'm thinking of things like the ARC stocks. Mm -hmm. Right. The th those kinds of stocks um, corrected tremendously. I mean, many of those are off 30, 40, 50, sometimes 70 percent from their highs. Why didn't a pullback in the market become deeper than that? Because of exactly what Mike talked about. There was just a rotation from there back into the tried and true, the safety trades, defensive, the mega caps. And the mega caps, <clears throat> excuse me, never really rolled over to a degree that it would have caused a bigger tremor um, in the stock market. Yet again, uh, the <clears throat> excuse me, the self-correcting nature of certain areas of the market that were, were overheated. And there's this whole generation of investors and traders who have just been following this mantra of buying the dip for the last decade or so, and it's paid off for them, by and large. Uh, so 
you know, it'll be interesting to see if that continues. Lots of news related to the Omicron spread. The UK's drug regulator has authorized use of Pfizer's antiviral pill to treat people with mild to moderate infection from COVID-19. Meantime, airlines canceled more than 1,300 flights Thursday due in part to staffing changes related to the pandemic. Yesterday on Closing Bell, JetBlue CEO Robin Hayes weighed in on the CDC's decision to shorten its recommended isolation and quarantine period. I think it, it's definitely going to it's definitely going to help. Um, you know, a, a lot of our crew members, uh, once they've uh, had COVID, they do want to come back, um, but they sort of been unable to 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 do so. Um, you know, but the size of the problem really is just the number of people uh, contracting it. We are still in a very steep increase here in the northeast. Seventy five percent of our crew members are based in the uh, uh, northeast, and in some areas, in some departments, uh, we're seeing between two to three hundred percent increases. Uh, in people calling out to what we would normally expect. So it's a very big number. So it's interesting because seasonally it it's already a difficult period for airlines. It was interesting as part of that interview, he talked about just the fact that a lot of staff will see their family members for the holidays. They'll get sick anyway, regardless of whether there's a pandemic going on. And then, of course, you have people taking time off for the holidays as well. But, Scott, you have to wonder what this means for rental car companies because Amtrak is having issues Airlines are having issues. No one's taking a cruise ship. So are people going to rent a car if they want to get where they need to be, even if it means driving, say, nine hours, which for a Midwesterner isn't even that bad? Yeah, thinking about all of the different levels of the hospitality industry, Leslie, as we're talking about these these cases. Uh, By the way, 580,000 plus new COVID cases yesterday that smashes the record. Remember yesterday, we're sort of sitting here astounded that you go 488,000 and you're like, you know, unbelievable Mm. numbers. Now, clearly hospitalizations, deaths, they're not spiking to the degree that that cases are or nearly where they were in prior cycles of COVID. And that's one of the reasons why the market has been able to hold up. But we can show the cruise lines if you want, as the CDC now says, don't take a cruise right now, no matter what your vaccination status is. Of course, the Cruise Association was out uh, fighting that uh, a little bit. But there are the, the names. They're not down tremendously. But one of the key questions, Mike, going into 2022 is what do you do with those types of stocks, the airlines, the cruises, the rental cars, as Les said, uh, hotels, any level of hospitality? Yeah, I think uh, probably for now continues to be very tactical, meaning you kind of trade them when you think the caseloads are peaking. There's another reopening dynamic that's not too far away. Uh, One aspect of this current wave, of course, is just how compressed and concentrated it is. And we're burning through it pretty quickly. So if you haven't seen the hospitalizations, I think Wall Street's pretty confident that uh, this is a really sped up experiment and, uh, you know, hoping for uh, a good outcome to it in, in, you know, several weeks, perhaps. Yeah, no doubt about that. All right, coming up, we're wrapping a year in which Tesla joined the Trillion Dollar Club and Rivian surpassed Ford and GM in market valuation. But EV stocks, including Lucid, are down sharply this month. We're going to look at what to expect in 2022. And as we head to break, take a look at this year's best performers on the S&P 500, led by Devon Energy and Marathon Oil. Maybe no big surprise, it's oil's biggest annual gain since 2009. More Squawk on the Street is straight ahead. Um. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. 
like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Let's turn now to EVs, shares of Tesla, Rivian and Lucid ending the year with a tough December. What can we expect going into 2022? Joining us now is Oppenheimer senior analyst Colin Rush uh, to talk about that. Colin, uh, good to see you. Uh, uh, you know, we've added uh, so much market cap in this area of the market, right? Uh, Tesla's up a few hundred billion in market cap this year. Rivian and Lucid together, 200 billion. I don't know what percentage of Ford, you know, more than doubling this year is about EVs. Is that, do you think, the market you know, sort of just catching on to the current size of the opportunity? Or have we have we kind of uh, overshot in terms of how quickly this transition is going to happen and these companies are going to develop? Yeah, I, I think we want to look at a couple of things. One, you know, this trend goes really back to uh, third quarter of 2019 when Tesla finally broke through on, on profitability in a real way. And, and uh, we've seen market cap growth from there uh, over the last couple of years. And so I, I think what's happening now is uh, we're looking at the transformation of the transportation industry and the market cap, you know, is reflecting what the opportunity size is. And as we look into 2022, we're really looking at this as a as an execution year. It's a, it's a major technology uh, transition for the industry. Um, you know, Tesla's really gone through some some challenges uh, in, in a public view uh, in, the, in the last number of years. And, and we're looking at you know, which platforms really can um, start making these cars in an efficient way, a, a cost-effective way, and in a profitable way. And I think we're going to find out, you know, who really can do that in 2022. Obviously, you believe, I mean, Tesla has shown that they can operate profitably at these volumes. Um, it seems as if right now production, the cadence of production is, seems baked in in terms of investor expectations for this year. Uh, what, what else is in the trillion dollar market cap for Tesla? I know you focus on the full self-driving opportunity and what they're working toward for that. But how near does that have to come to reality uh, for you know, the stock to work? I think for Tesla, it's really about keeping the the vision alive and executing along the way. So, with uh, you know the data that we have available at this point, you know we're looking at you know deliveries. In, uh, you know the consensus is 265,000 deliveries in the fourth quarter, and then incremental feature uh, you know rollout throughout the year. So, if there's a steady cadence of Tesla moving towards full self-driving, uh, you know we think that the valuation holds up and, and continues to to move higher. You know, and we look at that opportunity. It's a multi-trillion-dollar-a-year opportunity. 
opportunity uh, for, for any company moving into self-driving uh, mode. And so it's really substantial and then really supports upside to, to shares. We would just want to see uh, ongoing evolution of the technology because at the end of the day, it's actually, you know, super, super hard. Uh, and that's something that we think investors appreciate, uh, you know, but also are trying to balance between, uh, you know, who's executing against that opportunity and, and how big it is at this point. Hey, Colin, it's Scott. I'm wondering if we can say that 2022 is going to be the year where competition for Tesla finally gets real, right? We talk about, you know, they at one point the only game in town for the most part, then the biggest game in town. Uh, but now you've got everybody in town, whether it's Porsche, Volkswagen, BMW, Ford, GM, Rivian, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is this a year where that finally matters to Tesla? I think it's an important point because we think there's going to be a lot of cars on the road and that's going to just enhance the overall market. Uh, I think, you know, having more competition in the in the space, you know, benefits the supply chain. It benefits, you know, consumers comfort level with the vehicles and then they can do compare and contrast. And we think Tesla shakes out well versus the the, the peers in that in that environment. I think the, the real key is to continue to, to drive costs down and efficiency within the, the manufacturing and the design. And Tesla signaled where they're headed with that in terms of integrated approaches on uh, the, the vehicle design, you know, the battery evolution and scaling up production. And, and so I think as, as we go through 2022, you're going to see a lot of that teething that Tesla had to go through for a number of years really um, impact some of these other companies that are, are ramping up this year. Uh, and we're going to see, you know, what those vehicles actually look like and what the quality looks like. And I think Tesla shakes out well in that comparison. Colin, you've given us a great fundamental primer uh, on Tesla, but I want to ask you about the technicals. At certain times throughout the year, Tesla options represented nearly one out of every $2 spent on the listed U.S. options market. Uh, this level of activity can magnify swings, of course. It can also help propel and keep Tesla higher relative to other EV stocks. I'm just curious if you think that will continue in the new year. Absolutely. You know, there's so much volatility uh, within this segment of, of the market, and, and our practice is really based on sustainability. So we're looking at renewables and net zero trends in the power industry, materials, transportation, and agriculture. And, you know, there's still a lot to get figured out here. So we've been advocating folks looking at, you know, strong management teams, strong technology platforms, uh, and, and really uh, strong capitalization. And so when you look at that environment where there's a big opportunity, there's a lot of, uh, you know, like I guess I would call it the Wild West. We're still seeing, you know, how this shakes out. You know, you want to see that options activity around so that people are protecting their positions. And I don't think that changes here in 2022. Yeah, protecting or uh, amplifying them as, uh, as the case may be more likely with Tesla. Colin, hey, thanks a lot and Happy New Year. Appreciate it. Happy New Year. Uh, a programming note for tonight. Do not miss our CNBC special, Your Money 2022, hosted by Sarah Eisen. That's tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time. But first, another look at the NASDAQ 100's biggest gainers for 2021, Moderna and NVIDIA battling for that top spot. You can see some big returns, more than doubling for each of those. Squawk on the Street will be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. 
From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Earlier this year, or earlier we showed you this year's best performers on the S&P 500. Here's a look at the laggards right now, led by Penn National Gaming. A lot of the casino stocks and sports betting stocks had a really rough go of it. Penn National Gaming down 41% on the year. Opening bell just minutes away. Opening bell is going to ring in about a minute or so. Among the suspenseful things to watch today on this final trading day of 2021 and passed on from our markets desk and the great Robert Hum. Keep your eye on the Nasdaq today. A decline for the Nasdaq today, Mike, would be its fourth in a row. It would be the longest daily losing streak since the five-day one to end September of the 24th to the 30th. This tech remains a question into 2022. It's absolutely a question. Uh, so much focus on, you know, sort of the concentration or the perceived concentration uh, of the, the, the rally all year. Um, so the, the Nasdaq itself, especially the Nasdaq 100, really is uh, kind of a handful of stocks. On the other hand, you know, a lot of folks felt like it was going to be values year. If you look at growth versus value this year, Russell 1000 or S&P 500 growth versus value, growth has actually outperformed. Uh, it's only been in the last few months, but it is kind of interesting. It's that kind of that balance and that self-healing of the market that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, you're hearing the opening bells now and uh, taking a look at the CNBC real-time exchange down at the big board where Mike is, military veteran organization, House of Heroes, Connecticut, and over at the NASDAQ, Era's Acquisition Corporation. So we'll see what we do on this final trading day of the year. Uh, Leslie, one of the big questions, if you if you talk about laggards and we're looking at the Dow and uh, Disney, the worst performer out of the Dow. Yeah, and new chairman uh, takes over today. Susan Arnold becomes the Walt Disney chairman, succeeding Bob Iger. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see what she uh, has in store in the new year, because a a very surprising laggard, of course, they faced a a confluence of factors related to the pandemic. And uh, but of course, streaming has been a huge tailwind for them. So we'll see what happens there. I just wanted to point out some M&A figures for the year because we saw volumes hit a record high in 2021, breach $5 trillion for the first time. You kind of think about the impact of SPACs, the impact of private equity, which has been a huge driver of that activity, the impact of strategics having so much cash on hand and not too much to do with it. And of course, their stock price is higher as the market you know, we, we told you the statistics earlier, it just has been on a tear this year, how that played a role in M&A. And some headlines this morning on that front, you've got Hunter Douglas uh, selling a majority stake to 3G Capital for an enterprise value of $7.1 billion. Those shares surging in Amsterdam on that news. But then on the flip side, in the chip world, you've got AMD and Xilinx announcing that they're delaying that $35 billion all-stock takeover deal for Xilinx to the first quarter of 2022 from a prior year-end target, saying that they don't have the necessary approvals at this time. 
Based on what I'm hearing, there's a lot percolating behind the scenes, and we should see some of this M&A activity continue until the spigot has really been turned off. But so far, there's no end in sight. The fundraising for PEs continue. The SPACs seeking deals, I think the number is 570 SPACs seeking takeover targets right now. And then, of course, stocks at or near record highs, companies are going to see that as a currency to do more deal-making in the new year, Mike. Yeah, in fact, you know, Leslie, I would argue that, um, that actually we underperformed in M&A this year relative to the size of the stock market, relative to just how generous the credit markets are, how high, you're right, the currency of, uh, of existing share prices uh, is, and, and essentially the ability of these companies uh, to try and, you know, do these strategic moves. Yes, $5 trillion is a lot globally, but we did $3.5 trillion 15 years ago when the overall equity market value was like a one-third of it is right now. And if you think about it, didn't it seem like there was a lack of mega deals? You had the bidding yeah. war for Kansas City Southern. It's $30 billion. We're in a world of $2 trillion market cap companies. And yeah. the biggest, you know, most uh, kind of covered deal uh, of the year is $30 billion. So I think it's interesting. Maybe that says something about this winner-take-most type economy that we have, uh, or maybe there's a little bit of a regulatory chill uh, I think, out there that's preventing the big deals. Yeah, I think it's regulatory chill. I think there's also a lot of uncertainty still with regard to the pandemic and how that's going to impact businesses. I personally was expecting there to be more this year, just given the holdover from 2020, where corporate boards were basically like, heads down, let me figure out my business right now before I can engage in any kind of M&A discussions. And I remember just as a personal anecdote, back in 2015, when the M&A market was also incredibly active, and there was a $66 billion deal. And I said to my editor, do I have to cover this one? It's not $100 yeah, billion. Right. It's only 66. I mean, is this, is this necessary? Obviously, the answer was yes. Of course, you have to cover it. <laughs> but when you think back, you know, I think broadly speaking, we do have a large total. But cross-border M&A, too, also has been lagging given kind of the regulatory climate and just the relations on that front, Scott. Hey, guys, I, I did want to call your attention to um, shares of Peloton this morning and talk to you all about it um, just for a minute. It did get downgraded this morning as if it needed any other bit of tough news to digest uh, after such a, a tough year. Take a look at shares of Peloton this morning. It does get downgraded. Uh, JMP Securities goes to market perform from outperform. Uh, they cite declining website visits and page views. Uh, there's the stock uh, down 75%. And it's been, Mike, a pretty brutal year from so-called stay-at-home names uh, like yeah. this one. Zoom's down 44%. DocuSign is down 30%. Chegg's down uh, 65%. Teladoc, 52%. And Just Eat Takeaway is down 52%. A real critical question coming into 2022 is what happens to stocks like this in the new year? There's going to be a lot of focus on names like Peloton. It still remains a, a favored name. In, in some corners, but man, talk about, yeah. you know, crashing the bike. Well, <laughs> two, a two-year chart of, tel of Peloton tells an amazing story because you're basically right back down to levels first reached in early February of 2020. So it's this massive pandemic surge. And then, it, you know, all these stocks are suffering right now for the overshoots that an excitable uh, investor base took them to in those years of, you know, the early days of, of the Robin Hood mania and where momentum was, was, was all you needed. And people were willing to extrapolate what the pandemic would mean for these businesses. With, when it comes to Peloton, clearly the, the, the assessment now is they raced 
to a pretty high percentage of their likely addressable market in a hurry. And now there's a hangover effect from that. It's also hardware. It's, you know, it's a tougher business, arguably, at least at this phase, than some of those others that you mentioned, whether it's DocuSign uh, or Chegg, which, you know, have this sort of more of a virtual life to them. So I do think it's a good question, though, how some of the, the big losers of the last eight or 12 or uh, 10 months uh, are going to fare, at least in the short term, because, you know, usually it's a it's a scoop up the wreckage type trade when you get into January and people have a new performance year and a new tax year to work with. Mm. And sometimes the laggards end up having some pretty violent bounces. Oh, that's a really good point. I want to ask you also about what's going on in energy. It's it's almost surprising as you reflect back on the year to see that that's the best performing sector of 2021, especially given all the conversation we had surrounding ESG, environmental social governance. So many large funds have been screening out energy altogether. I think that's why you've seen active management underperform this year. But it's been great for the energy companies. It's been great for the commodity. It's been great for the sector investors. Uh, Mike, were you surprised to see this year turn out this way for energy? I think the magnitude of the gains, yes. Obviously, it's pretty much uh, mirroring what's gone on in the commodities, the underlying commodities. So that's uh, that's a good story about the global uh, recovery to some degree. Uh, but like a lot of those kind of, again, the, the reopening or the, the global reacceleration type sectors, whether it's you know retail, energy, all of them, most of the gains were in the first part of the year. They've held on to them. Uh, you know, and energy obviously has been pretty rewarding because it was a massively contrarian call to be, you know, excited to, for the upside in energy a year ago. So probably a lot of that's built in. A lot of these charts, too, look very similar recently. If you look at the banks, uh, they've had these nice bounces, uh, but still to a lower high. And they're not really uh, looking like they're, they're challenging the former highs right now. So clearly there's enough unease about the current pace of, of this recovery and what's going to happen with rates and the fact that we have this flattening yield curve that seems to be a dampener on, you know, cyclical sentiment. So I think that's, you know, holding the back in the short term. But uh, energy seems a much more popular call for 2022, to your point, than it did last year. No, no doubt. Like Tom Lee, for example, still has energy as his top sector for, for 2022. And it's no surprise given, you know, that oil's had its biggest annual gain since 2009. And we can put this back up. We, we mentioned it earlier, but Devon and Marathon are the two best performing uh, stocks out of the S&P 500 this year. No surprise when I tell you what oil prices have done. And by the way, there's news this morning from ExxonMobil that they're signaling they're going to report a fourth consecutive quarterly profit as well. So, Les, there, there does remain a, a fair bit of optimism in the oil patch. And, and what an interesting year it's been. And, and we should mention this, and you were right in the center of this conversation, <laughs> the interesting year that it's been for ExxonMobil. Yeah. Um, ESG at the forefront there, a few new board members, um, just the, the kinds of things that in years past you never would have thought would be a possibility at a company like ExxonMobil. And boy, how things changed this year. And you have to wonder, because at the crux of that activist fight back in the earlier part of the year, Engine number one was looking for this green energy transition for Exxon and said that this was something that shareholders needed to have happen. Well, they've certainly benefited just as an overall investor since they took their stake about a year ago. But you have to wonder if you look at today's announcement from Exxon, 
how that they've seen this massive tailwind from just the commodity prices and, and their traditional business lines. Does that kind of dissipate the argument that they need to be making that transition quicker to clean energy when they've seen so much in the way of profitability from their traditional, maybe browner businesses relative to their greener businesses, you have to wonder if it kind of stalls their decision-making on that transition. And as you see, the cost of capital for these projects become lower, Mike. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting and tricky question in terms of capital, capital allocation for something like Exxon, where, the, where management seems, whether they were pushed in this direction or not, to have really uh, completely reoriented and believing that the long-term future is there. Now, the company can benefit, I guess, from what's going on in the traditional energy markets along the way. Uh, the, the absolute bullish upside case a lot of folks will talk about when it comes to an Exxon is, you know, look at the chart of Altria and the other tobacco stocks in the years after the big tobacco settlement, uh, where everyone knew they were going to have to wean perhaps off of traditional modes of selling these things. They did have price ability to raise a lot of pricing, uh, and they and they were hemmed in on the regulatory side. And maybe they thought they had to go toward, you know, non, uh, you know, uh, combustible cigarettes and all the rest of it. But there was no hurry because they could just sort of be a cash cow along the way with the old business. It's not a perfect analogy, but I do think that some people are wondering if if the old energy companies can 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 kind of get some of that. Uh, strategy in place. Yeah, that's kind of the uh, the situation that's taking place at Shell right now, where you've got Dan Loeb, who wrote a letter to Shell's urging them to divide into several pieces, essentially separating their cash cow from their newer businesses, which of course require a lot more investment. Shell has really pushed back on that since then, but it definitely creates this interesting dynamic of you know, is it better to stay together as one or is really the sum of the parts bigger than than the whole as you look at this transition? And I think that what we've seen this year with regard to the underlying dynamics uh, for traditional oil and gas businesses would suggest that really it's it's okay to stay together right now, but every company is different. It'll be interesting to, to keep an eye on for next year. Yeah, let's get to Bob Pisani, uh, watching the markets uh, always. Happy New Year, Bob. What do you uh, what do you what Happy do you see on this final trading day uh, of the year that's of interest to you? Well, it's not a big point move, but it's three to two advancing to declining stocks, and we have a shot at closing at a new high, forty-seven ninety-three. That was the old closing high for the S and P five hundred. That was just a couple days ago. We're only seven or eight points away from that, and most of the major indices, most of the sectors, are all on the upside. Remember, this week's been. A little bit defensive dominated healthcare and utilities. Uh, REITs have been doing well, but uh, tech's holding in. We've got a nice bounce in semiconductors today. Uh, consumer staples, healthcare still holding in there. Uh, industrials, I've watched that middle sector, the cyclical group, the industrials, the banks, materials, uh, they're holding up very well. So that's why we're getting this market still staying at a new high. As for 2022, let me just look ahead and give you two narratives. There's a bearish and there's a bullish narrative, and there's one that's much more dominant. The bearish narrative uh, that's out there is that we're going to have continuing problems with COVID variants throughout the year. This is going to create more supply chain and inflation problems. The Fed is going to have to raise more aggressively than people thought to deal with these these inflation issues. And the consumer pulls back. This is a possible scenario. I have to tell you, it's not the dominant one at all. The major concern is actually not that the pandemic's going to continue and we're going to have more lockdowns and supply chain problems. Actually, the major 
uh, narrative for the market is exactly the opposite. You could call it bullish, but there's a warning on it. So the bullish way of looking at things is the pandemic becomes manageable. That's the key word people keep using all the time, that the consumer stays strong, that inflation subsides because the pandemic uh, becomes more manageable, and the Fed continues on its program of very slow interest rates, quarter point at a time, not much in the way of being aggressive, and that the earnings are better than expected. Instead of 10%, which is we're expecting for 2022, uh, the bulls are talking 15 to 20% growth in earnings. If this scenario holds, and this is the dominant narrative right now, the major problem becomes what is the impact of the stimulus withdrawal? Because that's what we don't have a model for. We have never seen 12 or 13 years where the Federal Reserve has been this involved in pumping money into the system. As on top of that, we have, of course, fiscal stimulus on top of monetary stimulus. So there's a lot of people arguing that it's time for a mean reversion here. Since the Fed has really gotten involved in, in post-great uh, financial crisis, the markets have had extraordinary returns. Look at these numbers. We're up 11 of the last 13 years. That's an extraordinary run. The average yearly gain uh, in those 13 years is about 15%. I'm rounding off here. The historic average return going back into the 20s is about a 10% return per year. So you see, we have had an extraordinarily unusual period of market beating returns. And a lot of people believe that the liquidity that's being pumped in is a part of this. We don't know how to factor that liquidity in, but nobody believes it's not an issue. Nobody believes it doesn't matter. And so if you believe that somehow that's helped pump up the stock market, what does the withdrawal of liquidity mean? The implication would be somehow it would have some kind of negative effect. We just don't know how to model that very well. That's the big issue that all the bulls and the bears are trying to grapple with right now. Finally, it's New Year's Eve. And what would it be without my old buddy, Art Cashin, coming out with his annual New Year's Eve program, uh, New Year's Eve poem. Here's a, a brief excerpt. 2021 was dreadful. It's time to move on. So we'll all cheer at midnight in relief that it's gone. Have faith that this new year will bring a new sign. Believe in yourself. It will all work out fine. Just lift up your spirits and some fruit of the vine and kiss ye a loved one and sing old Lang Syne. We love you, Art Cashin and old buddy. Look forward to sitting at Bobby Vans with you in 2022. And Leslie and all the guys over there, have a happy and safe new year. Happy New Year to you, Bob, and thank you for that little dose of optimism today. Uh, as we head to break, it's time for our final bond report for 2021. Let's start off with a year-to-date chart of the 10-year note yield, settling around 1.5% to close the year, however, making a big jump since the beginning of the year. We'll finish with the dollar index up more than 6% year-to-date as Fed moves and inflation remain in focus. We'll be right back. Senator Bernie Sanders taking aim at one of the world's wealthiest men in response to a CNBC politics tweet stating Warren Buffett told the senator he won't intervene in a strike at a Berkshire Hathaway owned company. Senator Sanders tweeted, quote, Mr. Buffett is one of the wealthiest guys on the planet. There is no reason that steelworkers at Special Metals, a West Virginia company that made one point five billion in profits last year, should accept an insulting contract that includes significant pay cuts and major cuts to their health care. Leslie, I guess there's no more low hanging fruit for Bernie Sanders than a super rich guy and a labor dispute. 
Yeah, I mean, interestingly, Buffett has largely been, you know, not targeted by Bernie Sanders thus far as others such as Bezos and Elon Musk have been. But Buffett does have this policy, and he, he really sticks to it, of kind of letting companies individually dealing individually deal with these types of issues on their own. He doesn't like to get involved. It's not his first time he's really kind of come across a union dispute, dispute in one of his companies. Back in 2015, his subsidiary, uh, or Berkshire's subsidiary, NetJets, uh, had about 2,700 pilots picketed outside Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting at the time arguing about various issues. So it's not something he's he's familiar with. He doesn't encounter this on a daily basis, but it's something that he's basically taken more of a hands-off approach with, Mike. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. He can lean back on this, you know, decades-long policy of giving autonomy to these companies. Precision Cast Parts is the overall company that he bought that this is a subsidiary of. Uh, he's actually been on the record of saying he overpaid uh, for that <laughs> company. Uh, but, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it would be uh, tough to, to unspool uh, labor issues across his entire uh, business. Although, one reason Senator Sanders probably uh, did target him is that he Buffett does have, uh, you know, kind of a political stance that is more amenable to, you know, workers getting paid more uh, and things like that. And, of course, he's planning to give all of his money away eventually. Uh, meantime, as we head to a break, uh, let's check out the Dow's biggest gainers of the year, Home Depot and Microsoft topping that list. Microsoft up more than 50 percent, over two and a half trillion dollars in market cap. And a reminder, uh, you can get in on the new CNBC Investing Club with Jim Cramer. Sign up and find out more at CNBC.com slash investing club or just point your phone at the QR code on the screen and it'll take you right there. Squawk on the street. We'll be right back. Despite the pandemic, the resilient consumer has given retailers a lift this year. Courtney Reagan has a look at what to expect from the group in 2022. More of the same, Court? Yeah, I think so, Les, and that actually could be a good thing because in a world that is still in a pandemic with new variants emerging, it's pretty amazing, really, to see how resilient the U.S. consumer has been and is expected to remain. Job opportunities are ample in the United States. Wages are finally rising. Home values are appreciating. It's a setup for consumers to have discretionary income to spend, even in the face of rising inflation. The XRT retail ETF has gained 42% compared to the broader S&P 500's 28% gain in 2021. A number of retailers rebounded by triple-digit percentages from pandemic lows this year, and many analysts have bullish outlooks for the new year, even if economic growth is expected to slow down from the rates that we've seen. For all the negative headlines surrounding America's malls and department stores, many tenants had banner years. The dying department store narrative didn't play out for America's biggest department store by revenue. Shares of Macy's grew 140% this year. It's a top pick for Cowan and Company for 2022. Dillard's gained nearly 300%. Investors had little patience for Nordstrom's executive and execution missteps. However, shares ended the year down about 26% for that name. Mall name Bath & Body Works now, its own publicly traded company after the Victoria's Secret separation, gained 132% for the year. It lands on J.P. Morgan and Telsey Advisor Group's top picks for 2022. Signet Jewelers gained 215% in 2021. But the hypergrowth e-commerce players fall, fell well short of the hype and the potential. Even the biggest e-com play of them all, Amazon shares 
grew only 3.5% this year. Chewy shares dropped more than 30% this year. And resale may be hot for millennials and Gen Z as a trend, but investors are not impressed with the lack of profit. ThreadUp, Poshmark, they went public this year joining the Real Real, and all three of those names shed between 53% and 66% of their value in 2021. Scott? All right, Court, appreciate it. Courtney Reagan. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.